This week, an 18-year-old racist goes two hours to murder 10 in a supermarket shooting. Big primary results come in from North Carolina and Pennsylvania. And America sends a staggering aid package to Ukraine. What are the ramifications? My name's Noah Huey, and this is Under the Stars. Welcome back, everyone. It's great to have you all back here with me. Um, before we begin, I'd like to remind you to follow my Instagram and my Twitter. That's at Huey Noah, at H-U-G-H-U-I-N-O-A-H. That's at Huey Noah. You can also subscribe to Under the Stars on YouTube for my favorite moments and clips from the show. You can find Under the Stars on Spotify and Apple Podcasts, and wherever you're listening or watching, if you are on Spotify, make sure to give it a review. It'd be greatly appreciated. It'd also be appreciated if you would support my show through my merch and my books in the shop section of my website. And uh, there soon, very soon, as in a week or two from the day this podcast premieres, you will be able to find my fourth book, Hanging in the Balance, available on uh, Amazon or in my store. That's May 29th, Sunday, May 29th. Keep an eye out for that. Um, I think you'll enjoy it. So our first piece of news comes from Buffalo, New York, and it actually comes from over the weekend in, uh, in an event that caught the minds of Americans and the hearts of Americans and is um, a terrible tragedy, which it, it kind of overshadows the other two shootings that also happened that same weekend. Um, but the three of them, there, there are minor detail uh, variations between the events. And really, I, I focus on this one because of two things. The, um, the circumstances of the shooting as well as the intent, which is um, pretty blatant and obvious. Uh, this is from the Buffalo News. Uh, Ten people were gunned down at a Buffalo supermarket Saturday in a horrifying mass shooting event that officials were quick to label as pure evil and racially motivated. The shooting stunned a community ba basking in warm May in a, in a warm May afternoon, with shoppers filing the tops the tops is the name of the supermarket in a predominantly black neighborhood at 1275 Jefferson Avenue. Quote, it's the weekend, so it was packed, Chanel Harris, an operation manager working at the Tops during the shooting, told the Buffalo News. Harris said that when she learned heard gunshots, she ran frantically through the store, falling several times before exiting out of the back. She saw the shooter, whom she described as a white man, wearing camouflage. He looked like he was in the army, she said. She thought she heard 70 shots. Of the 13 people shot, 11 were black and two were white. Buffalo Police Commissioner Joseph uh, Gramag... I think it's pronounced Gramagila? Gram... Gramila? Let me just double check what that is uh, said. I may be pronouncing that incorrectly. More of the victims' identities weren't released as of late Saturday night. Yeah. However, the sources told the news that one of the dead was Aaron Salter, a recently retired Buffalo police officer working as a security guard at the store, while another was Ruth, Ruth Whitfield, the mother of former Buffalo Fire Commissioner Garnell Whitfield. The shooting is the worst in Buffalo history. Quote, we are hurting and we are seething right now as a community. Buffalo Mayor Brian... Byron Brown said at a news conference following the shooting. Sorry. Catherine Crofton, a retired firefighter and medic, witnessed the shooting from her porch on Riley Street. She said that she was playing with her dog and smoking a cigarette when she heard a shot. Quote, I didn't see him at first. I turned around and I saw him shoot this woman, Crofton said. She was just going into the store and then she, he shot another woman. She was putting groceries into her car. I got down because I did not know if he was going to shoot me. Four of those shot were store employees. The dead included the security guard who confronted the gunman, gunman Garmila reported. Garmila hailed Salter as a hero. Uh, currently, uh, the man, who's actually my age, 18 years old, um, is in custody, and I believe he's been indicted by a grand jury. Um, there's a manifesto that's currently not available on the internet, which I would like to read. All that's said of this supposed manifesto was that it's in meticulous detail about every specific uh, action that the shooter was going to take, uh, as well as a lot of the ideologically and, ob and blatant, obvious racial um, 
biases in it. It brought up this debate that's kind of still circulating around today about this this uh, racial ideology theory called replacement theory, uh, in which uh, subscribers of this belief think that the elites of the nation are um, letting, uh, I suppose, are basically replacing white voters with black and brown voters in order to attain political power, essentially. Um, and this is a, a version of it. Some people have just described it as a fear that white people are being replaced in society. Others have described it as a fear of white political power being taken from society. Um, it, from my understanding, it seems that like many of the issues we kind of face in modern political discourse, it's very much sort of whatever the, the eye of the beholder wishes to see uh, from the situation. You know, conservatives, because here's the thing, conservatives are really being hit hard by this. I, I almost wrote an article that I, I still have, like, working out details and I never finished it in my Medium account, um, which is a great place to follow me. It's, it's my blog, basically. And, um, you know, the left is really going at this. There's something about shootings in America that I think a big problem about them is that they're often used as political capital. And I think that it being a, 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 a midterm year is kind of really bad because... Now the, the, the liberal uh, establishment of America is kind of using this as an opportunity to go after um, Republicans and go after conservatives in general. Tucker Carlson was massively hit. I believe he was mentioned by the shooter in this manifesto, which reminds me, the manifesto is stolen a lot. There's apparently a lot of plagiarized work from, uh, from other manifestos, the New Zealand church shooter, or uh, is it a church or a synagogue? I forget if it's a, I think it's a synagogue. Um, uh, uh, oh, what's his name? The guy in California, not too long ago, um, and there, there's actually another. There was, a, I think, an attempted bombing in California. Actually, I'm not entirely sure. Uh, that also happened over the weekend. The, I guess, the ideology of it, I don't know. And I, I've sat down and I've listened to Tucker Carlson clips. I've tuned into Fox News a couple times to try and listen how they're interpreting the situation, and. Uh, the way, because it's strange, a lot of these Fox News, a lot of these like high-profile conservative commentators and um, uh, figures, uh, what they're speaking of, the issue is because it's very easy to tie to them. Um, this kind of goes to issues like immigration and stuff like that. Um, I don't know. It's. I feel like we're all talking about like six different things at once, but we're all calling it one thing, which is a little bit destructive and distracting. Um, what else is there to mention? The shooter was supposedly, well, not supposedly, was it was found to have been radicalized online uh, during the lockdowns. Not that much of a surprise. Um, you know, plenty of people kind of went on mega lockdown over the pandemic, over the lockdown portion of the pandemic. And um, many people have come out of that more radicalized than they were because we were spending much more time on the internet. And on the internet, it's much easier and there are more groups paying to ensure that the internet acts as a great big echo chamber for whatever ideology um, you want to subscribe to. So it's not un inconceivable that this, this kid went online and just kind of dug down in these lame rabbit holes of racist ideology. That's that's no big surprise. That has no real concern in relation to the political capital. And I, I don't want to speak on the political capital of this because that that's, I think, in essence, the issue. I think the liberal tying of trying to ensure that conservatives of any, with any sway, any kind of conservative with a, a bit of a name and a, a little bit of popularity is tied to the shooting as like a direct influence of it you know tucker carlson well named uh i think is i don't know it just seems like a low move i i, I get like i hear the calls that essentially they need to be held accountable because the liberal claim is that conservatives are up are uh, perpetrating this idea this replacement theory thing and the thing is not not all the ones i i've heard or that i i don't listen to a very great a great many liberal uh, or um, or conservative uh, commentators, but the ones that I do and the ones that I hear from and that I looked up over the week, over the course of the week, as I'm listening to the different perspectives so I can try and get an idea of what's going on, it's 
I don't think it's as concise as, or it's as conclusive as that. Uh, Tucker Carlson, um, he had a bit, I think this Sunday, um, on his other show, not Tucker Carlson tonight, but the other one that he does, um, where he like has guests on, I, I don't know the name of it, but it's got like this, he's got this big like wooden panel with a TV and the guest sits on the side and he sits on behind the desk. I'm not entirely sure what it's called. I don't really care. But on that show, he was speaking to a guest about this shooting. It was just after it had happened. And Carlson kind of echoed this idea. He's like, liberals are coming after us for saying that they're trying to remove, quote unquote, natural born citizens power um, political sway by importing a bunch of illegal immigrants to vote. And he's like, but that is happening. That is, I mean, first and foremost kind of shifting the goalposts here. This was a racially motivated attack specifically against black people. Um, it's mentioned in the manifesto from the reports we're told. I'd love to actually have a copy to read so I can understand a little bit more of what this person was thinking. Um, but I also think that it's kind of jumping around the fact that that's just... I, I mean, for, first and foremost, I, I don't believe that. I mean... Let me well, let me rephrase it. Let me rephrase that. I, I, I do think it's entirely plausible that the Democratic Party wants specific groups of people to vote for them. Uh, but the issue with Tucker Carlson's explanation in that clip or whatever was that uh, on on the issue of of um, immigrants when he because he talked about the southern border specifically on that issue, there are actually a great deal of um, Latinos. Uh, who are very much conservative, you know, in fact, uh, Trump is one of the, is a Republican who in any election recently has done the best with Latinos and black voters in America. Uh, so I feel like that kind of contradicts his own point. But I also, I think a big issue with the entire logic there is just simply that it's based in the whole liberal elite, stupid, us versus them, good versus evil nonsense that is completely unfalsifiable. You can't prove it, it does or doesn't exist. You can't define it. You can't, there's no parameters to work with. We're working with a big moot nothing as the basis for which is supposed to exist some kind of stupid debate. When, you know, I, I can't say for sure that, he, that this is a guy who just like wants white people to have more political power or not. I, I can't, I really, I, I can't, this, he, this guy is like walking back on so many different ideas and jumping back and forth between different points that I wouldn't be able to tell you for the life of me what Tucker Carlson's mindset is. So I can't really say, oh, the liberals are going too far or they're, they're making the right call saying Tucker Carlson should be held accountable for supposedly spreading this theory. I do think the stuff he talks about when it comes to this whole being great, like this whole great replacement thing it is ridiculous. I think it's, makes it would make sense but the issue is he makes it out as if it's like this evil plot no it, it's just it's the same as, as republicans moving polling locations and and um other voting necessities out of predominantly black neighborhoods now do i think that that's because republicans hate black people no i think that's just because republicans want to make it harder for democrats to vote just as re democrats would love to make it harder for republicans to vote just like the two of them do for people who don't want to vote for either of them they have they use the money and influence they have to try and make it harder for anyone else to vote. Now that those two have gotten rid of every single other option on the board because they flood our discourse with propaganda and rhetoric uh, since they have more money than every other group or candidate uh, in the country, uh, now they're trying to do it to each other, which is an issue because they both have sizable um, foundations of, of financial and... Um, I suppose, political capital that they're working with, that their other opponents, third party, independent candidates just wouldn't have. Um, and I think it just so happens that Democrats, that in case in certain instances and in certain many communities, and just historically speaking, you know, uh, black people have been registered Democrats. That's just, I mean, that's that's just the, the statistical thing. Do I think that has any relevance or any moral, grand moral purpose? No, I think that's just, you know, that that party in the kind of switching area period um, in the late 60s uh, kind of shifted its rhetoric and became this kind of safe haven um, for black Americans during the civil rights movement. And uh, so I, I wouldn't blame... Um, 
anyone for registering Democrat, but that's besides the point. The point being that, and I think that I think it would, you know, also make political sense. But this is all like this is all like uh, speculation, though. This isn't like there are secret. There's a secret dossier that like reveals the Democrats have this evil plan that. That's just just it feels more like a broad moral emotional aphorism used to propagate political fear uh, in hopes of gaining support in the midterms. And so my ultimate issue with the politicization of the politicization, the politic is it the politic polit maybe it is the politicization. My issue with the, that discussion, the political uh, hue to this issue is that it's just gross and unfitting. Um, you know, I think that there are also very valid uh, thoughts about um, gun control and gun safety related to this issue. Um, I tweeted, uh, what did I tweet? I tweeted something about it a while ago or when it happened, or I suppose roughly after I had <laughs> learned it happened. I don't tweet often so I can find it pretty easily. I said, uh, there it is. I said, Americans should be sick and tired of uh, convicted killers being, quote unquote, investigated for a prior threat and getting away with it. It's not radical to think violent racists shouldn't have guns. I, and I stand by that statement. And I know it, it's interesting. Usually when these kinds of shootings happen, it becomes a, a gun debate issue. And I was waiting for that to happen. But I think the whole political ideology of it has kind of consumed it. I think it being a midterm year made this the perfect storm for Democrats and Republicans to basically desecrate the legacies of the people who were murdered uh, and kind of just completely offend and insult the sensitivity of the subject by turning it into another piece of political capital um, for their party to hopefully win the election. So I think it's disgusting and just another example of just the pure disconnect between the Republican or the, yeah, the Republican and the Democratic establishment and average American people. Um, I, because I think there's also an issue here. I mean, first of all, I th at this point, we all agree, you know, this guy was a violent racist. He hated black people. He wanted them to die. He may have shot it. I think it was like two white people. I think it said 11 were black, two were white. But I think that focusing... Oh, goodness gracious. Yeah, two were white. Um, I don't know the circumstances of that, so I'm, I can't really make any good commentary on that either. All I can say is that we, we it's known that this was a, a racially motivated crime. He killed black people and had plans to go into the, the neighborhoods, I believe, as well, um, because he wanted people of color to die. He wanted them dead. He wanted to see their blood gushing from their body. I mean, this is an awful person with awful thoughts who spent too much time in an echo chamber to the point that he decided he was going to take his delusional, virtuous uh, mission uh, into, into uh, fruition. And uh, it resulted in death and destruction, um, as, as it always will. But... I think there is something to say about gun crime there, and uh, as someone who who believes in that kind of notion that, I mean, someone like this should not be able to get a gun. Um, I mean, first and foremost, uh, let's talk about the fact this is a, a state with tons of um, gun restrictions, and the uh, shooter got his gun legally. This guy went through everything and was able to acquire this firearm. Um, and, and nothing came up. He's been investigated before for prior uh, threat suspicions at a school. I mean, this is... And it, it, all, it all got through. No, no, nothing stopped him from being able to get through this. So there... It's, I think, telling. Um, and I think it isn't a controversial thing to think that violent racists with a history of posing a threat to society ha don't reserve the right to a firearm at the same extent that uh, Americans, uh, by and large, have a right to. Um, because when your freedom, when your right to own a firearm threatens the very right to life that other people have, it threatens the safety, the security, and the freedom of other people, you're, you're committing an offense of the worst degree. Now, 
there are minor details and there always will be sub like sub significant minor details in every case that differentiates each case from the next. Like in this one, it was clearly racially motivated in others. It's always not always the same. Um, you know, uh, but the point is there's two really big things I think to pull from this, maybe two or three. Um, obviously racism is a, is, um, a terrible ideology with nothing good to contribute to society. Um, not on, and on top of that, there's absolutely no factual basis for just about a single thing. It thinks, uh, it's not radical and crazy and tyrannical to think that violent, angry, ideologically delusional, crazy people, uh, who have previously posed threats to the rest of their society don't reserve the right to own a firearm, the same as Billy Bob Joe down the street from me who uses a gun to hunt. He poses no threat. He's posed no threat before. Uh, I have no issue with him owning a gun. If there's a crazy, violent racist that lives next door to me and he wants to go into town and shoot up a black neighborhood, I'm going to say that guy should not be able to get a gun uh, at all. He should be, should be as as hard as possible for him to get a gun, especially if he's posed prior threats before. If it's just all hypothetical, okay, fine, give him some leeway. But if this is a guy who has been a clear threat in the eyes of the law, then this is someone who doesn't reserve that right to the Second Amendment as other Americans do. And third, what was the third one? Oh, and third, the politicalization of this tragedy is disgusting and awful and and turns me off to both parties because it's pretty... It's pretty it's pretty pathetic that that's the level that these people are, that these ideological institutions are going to, to push their, their utopian, delusional utopian narrative. And it's that very delusional utopian narrative that pushes people down those radical rabbit holes that end up creating people like this kid in Buffalo. And the fact that they refuse to see that kind of truth, which I, I believe fairly certain fairly certainly is hold on let me rephrase that is fairly certainly true what is that a sentence i'm just going to say i believe this is true to an extent i believe evidence corroborates this idea it's a little bit infuriating i won't lie um so that's that first issue it, it it's a big issue it's got a bunch of stuff related to it you know you know how these things are um but the fact of the matter is luckily uh it stopped when it did and he's in custody now Speaking of politics, there are two primaries happened in North Carolina. So one's right here in my home state and one in Pennsylvania. Um, and we had some big results. I'm going to start in North Carolina where we had some big results because uh, uh, there's a big, there's a big uh, question going on in Pennsylvania that I'd like to talk about in, in a moment. So here in North Carolina, we had some big primaries. I live in the district of question. Uh, that would be District 11. District 11 is currently Representative Madison Cawthorn's district, one of the most inflammatory and ideologically possessed um, members of Congress, in my opinion. Um, and really, the ideological delusion that Madison Cawthorn subscribes to is actually not so much... Um, is not what uh, what the Republican Party was not okay with. The Republican Party, by and large, I think at this point, is perfectly okay with the kind of delusional, um, you know, our ideology is supreme and owns everything and should own everything and everyone should bow down to our cultural and political policing. Um, it's just the fact that he's a bad spokesperson for those ideological, for that kind of ideological supremacy, that kind of rhetoric. Um, I'd actually like to talk about the Democratic primary, if I may. I just want to mention that um, the candidate I very much prefer, Jasmine Beach Ferrara. She's a citizen of Asheville. I'm just 20 minutes away and a, a Buncombe County commissioner. She serves very well. Um, I think she could be a strong fighter. Um, I'm interested to see how she goes up against the person who beat Madison Cawthorn in his primary. Uh, I, to remind you, if you follow me on Instagram, you'll know I voted in that in the Republican primary. Um, you know, I'm an unaffiliated voter. And I wanted my vote to really ultimately go towards what I thought would be the best outcome, or at least a better outcome. And knowing that I wouldn't be here for the general election, I'll have moved by that point. Um, so I, my district will no longer, I won't be eligible to vote in this district. I decided I needed to put, um, 
any effort I could into hopefully beating Madison Cawthorn. So I voted in the Republican primary. I, I didn't vote for Chuck Edwards. Or let me think about that. No, 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 I didn't. I voted for someone else. Um, she was a great candidate, Wendy Navarez. I think I talked about her before. Um, uh, which, not surprisingly, she didn't do incredibly well. Um, but Chuck Edwards beat Madison Cawthorn by about oh, thousand some votes, thousands, a thousand, uh, maybe about a thousand. Uh, let me think about that. A thousand three hundred votes or so, roughly, something like that. A little over a thousand votes. Now, Jasmine Beach Ferrara beat Katie Dean, who was the second number two in the list of Democratic candidates. She won heftily over her, like well over twenty thousand votes for Cawthorn and. And Edwards, it was just that bare, not even two, 1,500 vote, um, uh, what's the word, um, threshold. Um, ultimately I'm, I'm pleased with the results. I think Madison Cawthorn, I mean, forget about the ideology. I can talk all day about how I think Madison Cawthorn is possessed by the, delusional ideological supremacy or idea, this idea that the that the party and his ideology is the absolute supreme good and supreme intellect and knows better and is better than everyone else and deserves like the all-knowing, all-seeing power and authority over government. That I can rant and rant and rant about that all day. That's the that's basically the point of this podcast is for me to rant and rant and rant about that all day. I, I do want to talk political um uh, logistics here at the end of the day I think it really was just his messaging <clears throat> he was too rife with scandal after scandal after scandal uh, and just he's just so immature he's such an immature person even if I were to subscribe to his ideology because here's the thing I've been to Chuck Edwards website and it reads on the same ideological basis as Cawthorn. There, there's almost nothing with it. So it's got to be a, 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 a nothing between them that really distinct, distinguishes them from the other, other than the fact that Edwards is much older. He's got more experience. I believe he's, he's served for quite a while in the military, if I remember correctly. And that's that's all great. But when it comes to the ideological consensus, the political consensus, Edward and, Edwards and Cawthorn are, are, are uh, uh, bred from the same... What is the how does that phrase go? Bread from the same litter, I guess. Bread from the same litter. Um and uh I think it's really just about messaging. Um Edwards is older uh and um I think with people who actually do believe in the whole ultra maga or whatever dark maga is a term I'm hearing online um thing. Uh Edwards is a much more I guess, uh, proposable candidate. So I'm interested to see how, how Jasmine Beach Ferrara goes up against Edwards. Um, because the thing is, Ferrara, Beach Ferrara, Jasmine, has spent a lot of her campaign talking about Madison Cawthorn as if she was expecting to go up against him. Well, now that he's been beat in the primary, I'm interested to see if she can take that same kind of fighting spirit with Edwards. Um, because at the end of the day, I really don't, I wouldn't want to see, I wouldn't be surprised to see one of these Trump Republicans elected to office. It's, it would be no big surprise to me. North Carolina is a swing state, but this district, I actually, what I love, I really do. I love district 11. I love Western North Carolina a lot because you can drive so many uh, miles and end up in Asheville, which is an incredibly liberal area and then go so many miles, the opposite direction and end up. For example, I'm not that far off from Marshall, which I would say actually Marshall's got quite a unique population politically. Um, I've only ever been there a handful of times in my life, but from the experiences that I have, it, it certainly is an area that you um, would expect a lot of conservative ideology to be um, really honed in on because it's a it's really like a small tight knit community. But I think you'll be surprised to find that in places like. Um, uh, oh, goodness gracious. What is the name of that little town? Something with a J. Or is it J? I don't know. I, I can't remember. There's a little town in Marshall. Um, you'll find... Uh, the point is, you'll actually be surprised. The The, the ultimate uh, point I'm trying to make here is that District 11, Western North Carolina, just in general, has a lot of political diversity, and I really enjoy that. It kind of exemplifies um, the uh, the swing statish nature that North Carolina has that I really enjoy. Um, because I think that 
swing states are more indicative of the political reality that there isn't an abject, good, intellectual, uh, absolute side that just knows everything and is smarter than everyone and more morally correct than everyone. And, it, and that it's really, in terms of popularity, there's not much you're going off there. Um, so yeah, I love the district. So I'm interested to see how it turns out. Um, just because you could really see, I think our, we ended up, our district ended up going, or our county ended up going for Trump. La- I mean, largely our district went going for Trump. If it weren't for Asheville, I think Buncombe County would have had m- many more votes for Trump during the 2020 election. Um, so, you know, interesting. Uh, in Pennsylvania, um, uh, currently in the Senate race, there's kind of interesting. John Fetterman handily won by a couple hundred thousand votes. The Senate... Um, the Senate nomination, which I find uh, pretty impressive, um, given that Fetterman's kind of a, he's kind of a, I'm not surprised about the whole, he's kind of like get down in the dirt, let's if, let's like really arm wrestle this out with the, with the uh, right. Um, but I am a little uh, impressed, or I guess maybe not impressed, but surprised, because um, Fetterman is, I wouldn't necessarily call him a Bernie bro, but he's certainly, he's certainly, um, I guess he's certainly uh, there. He's certainly getting there, I suppose. He won very handily is the point. Um, so, yeah, I think that's pretty interesting. In terms of Fetterman himself, he had this – he had a migraine and they've had, a, I believe, a some kind – I don't know if it was a pacemaker or um, th- there's another device. They had something installed in him over the weekend, so he wasn't really able to celebrate the victory. Um, but he uh, – in terms of Fetterman himself, I think I just think he's an interesting character. I actually I kind of like him more. I, I I kind of like him more than I used to. Um, and I, I I don't know. I just generally generally think he's an interesting character. I'm in, I'm just I, I need to see what he does in the general election right now, really, before I see anything else. Now the real issue, the real question at hand, is actually the um, the the Senate race in for the Republican primary. It's currently at this point at ninety nine percent of the votes counted not been called for either candidate that's in the lead. And the two candidates that are in the lead are uh, Mehmet Oz, Dr. Oz, we all know him, and Dave McCormick. The thing is, Oz is a Trump-endorsed candidate. Um, So Oz is the one that Trump endorsed. McCormick, uh, I know he's very much one of those... um, I guess Trump Republicans, if that's what we're going to call them, MAGA Republicans. I, I, you know, I I don't really um, care but he he's certainly one of those kinds of Republicans is the point. And um, that may be why it is so so close indeed. Um, neither candidate has declared victory, uh, though Donald Trump said Oz might as well just do it before they quote unquote uh, stuff the ballots again. So Trump is still on his uh, anti-democratic just sort of democracy is when I win and nothing else ever. Um tirade which is really worrying for 2024 but since we're not there yet um i'm i'm glad oz has thus far not taken his advice i i wouldn't be able to tell you about either candidate this is a state i that i live far far away from uh these are candidates i know very little about um other than oz has a tv show and he's a tv doctor which is a little frightening i i'm not sure how to feel about tv doctors so the fact that he's a tv doctor and he's running for the senate is pretty is pretty strange um, so I, 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 again, this is one of those things where I'd like to just see how it turns out. Um, from my knowledge though, both McCormick and Oz are pretty much Trump Republicans, uh, I think, um, if I'm remembering correctly. And, um, at this point I, I just need to see how it turns out and maybe, I don't know, maybe I should be reading up more on their campaigns because Pennsylvania is a pretty, we're, this is a pretty influential state, especially when we're talking about the Senate. So th- maybe there's a bit more there to talk about than, um, than I'm willing to recognize at this point. Uh, there's something I do want to talk about. I was listening to Michael Smirkanish, great commentator. I listened to his show. Um, I listened to at least the second and third hour of his radio program on Sirius XM, which you can access on their app or, or on, on their, if you put it as a preset in your car. Um, it's a great show. But uh, So I got to vote in... What in either primary, in whatever primary I want. We have open primaries here in North Carolina, meaning I, an unaffiliated voter, am allowed to vote in either primary. Uh, Smirkanish, Mike was not able to vote in these primaries. He's sitting back as a dutiful observer of these primaries. And 
you know, he talks about the importance of open primaries. And I have to agree. Uh, Republicans and Democrats are not going to agree with this because that makes them feel upset as if they're not getting the kind of sway they want. And so like, well, you should just register with us. I mean, first and foremost, that goes against my principles as a person. I know you like to make believe that a person's not principled when they're not registered under the party that you like. But that's truly just not the case. My principles lie in tolerance, liberty, and independent government. And frankly, neither party represents that to me. I don't think any party on the face of the earth represents that to me, truly. Um, if I had to pick one, I may register as a libertarian, but I don't ever see me doing that because they have such strange social stances. I, I, there are so many strange libertarians out there that I just I couldn't see myself ever being one. So I, I remain unaffiliated with anyone. I don't think political parties are truly capable of even upholding the idea of independent government. I think that at this point, um, without strong checks from the people and from their members and from other parties, what they do is they, they fall into this rabbit hole of authoritarianism that I think will inevitably destroy the democracy that our country um, stands to be. And I think that's a very present issue. But... That, but besides my political philosophy, there's also the very real issue, uh, and I'm going to word it the way Smirconish did, in which he quoted Ronald Reagan, or he paraphrased Ronald Reagan by, in saying, I pay for this primary. And that's a very good point as well. Um, forget about principle and political philosophy for just a moment. Let's just talk about the fact that I'm paying for your primary. So if, if my tax dollars are going to go into your political process, how is it fair at all that I'm not allowed to have a say? So that leaves us at an ultimatum where either, in my opinion, you need to find new ways to be able to pay for your primaries or let me vote in the primary, in those primaries as well, you know? In fact, use it. You could use it as a political opportunity. If you're Republican and you have an open primary, try and speak to independent and unaffiliated voters, third-party voters. Speak to even speak to other, you know, speak to these people who don't feel at home in any party and say, "Hey, we think we've got great candidates this year. Why don't you come on out and vote for one of them?" I think that this two-dimensional it's only us and that's it and we're just better than everyone, I think is delusional and I think it's just a, 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 lar a symptom of the larger disease that partisan politics will forever be. Um, so, yeah, I think that speaks to a little bit of the issue of closed and open primaries. I think open primaries are a must in a true democracy, especially one where not everyone has the same beliefs and ideals and interpretations as two major parties. Um, but also just speaking technically here, again, uh, we pay for your primaries, too. So I don't see how it's fair to be completely um, alienated from them and excluded from them when we're going to have to foot the bill for it a little bit. I mean, you're splitting it with us as well. So I think that's a fair point to make. Smirconish argues it, I think, a little better than I do. But, but we, we move on and we live. Uh, the DOJ has requested January 6th transcripts, but the committee seems to be uh, kind of not strong-arming them, but butting them a little bit, hitting back. This is from Political. The Department of Justice has asked the January 6th Select Committee for transcripts from its investigation, but the panel has not yet shared them, the panel's chairman, Benny Thompson, said Tuesday. Um, Thompson said he, said he has replied that the committee won't hand over its work product, but might invite the department officials to review the documents in committee offices. Uh, the Justice Department's request to the Select Committee was first reported by the New York Times on Tuesday. The department has been expanding its investigation into January 6th, the insurrection, and homing in on figures in, in former President Donald Trump's orbit, particularly those associated with organizing Stop the Steal events that preceded, that preceded the, Capitol, the attack on the Capitol. The committee has interviewed more than a thousand witnesses, including dozens of figures connected to the January 6th rallies. One of them, Ali Alexander, has also confirmed he has received grand, a grand jury subpoena. Obviously, I think this is a good thing. This is an event that needs to have a strenuous um, focus on it, which is why I am worried about a, a, a potential and maybe even at this point inevitable Republican domination in, in Congress after the midterms because it's no doubt that, the, um, that they're going to completely chop this whole thing off before it gets to a conclusion they don't want to hear. And, you know, I talked about this when this, you know, I talked about the whole political, uh, the, the issue, I suppose, with um, partisan, 
partisans investigating events. The Democrats are obviously going to want to find certain people guilty. But I think I think the members of this committee are, are great. I think there are a couple of members of them that I think could have there would have been better than others. I don't I don't like Adam Schiff. I don't think he's a responsible person just in general. Jamie Raskin's a little questionable, in my opinion. <clears throat> but Benny Thompson, I trust wholeheartedly. Liz Cheney, I trust. Adam Kinzinger, I, I absolutely adore. I think is a wonderful public servant. It's a shame he's not running for re-election. But so I think members of this of this committee are not as bad as either side makes them out to be. Um, but there's just a lot of partisan delusion going on surrounding this, as there would be. This is we're talking about um, one of the worst attacks on democracy um, in recent history. Um, especially from inside the country. So, uh, I don't know. I, I I guess I don't fully follow the logic. Uh, Thompson said, uh, where's the quote? Thompson said, my understanding is they want to have access to our work product, and we told them, no, we're not giving it to anybody. I guess the idea is that, uh, I guess they're not really done, is what he's saying, and that people are welcome to come and see bits and pieces of what they've done, but essentially they don't, they want, I guess the justice department or the justice department, the, the committee is looking for, I guess, trying to present a full dossier of everything that they have and everything they, they that they know. But, um, I'm just not, uh, I don't know. I, I, if it was me, if I was the grand controller of the January 6th committee, I feel like I would cooperate a little more closely than that, but I'm also not a justice expert. So, <laughs> Um, I don't know. I don't know. I, I can follow the logic. And I, again, I'm glad that J- the DOJ is looking more st- strenuously into this. I think this is an important issue to look into, and it's something that matters. So that's important to talk about. That's, that's really all there is to say about it. Our final piece of news today um, is the aid package just recently sent to Ukraine after being de- de- uh, delayed a little bit. Um, lot, we're talking large numbers. Um, uh, President Joe Biden requested that Congress send $33 billion of energy emergency um, energy emergency aid to the country at war with Russia, and that the U.S. House and the U.S. House increased the pot to $40 billion, with about 60% going towards security assistance in some form or in some form or another. A bipartisan majority in the Senate is expected to approve it this week. I think that just recently happened, like today. It's an unprecedented ramp up that builds on the rapid transfer of billions worth of weapons already sent. As Russia's brutal invasion enters its third month, it's clear why the U.S., a close partner of Ukraine and an ally of the 29 other North Atlantic Treaty Organization countries, about to become uh, 31, has or basically becoming 31, has made support for the country a national security priority. But it's worth stepping back to consider the sheer scale of the military aid headed to Ukraine, what it means for the country's future, and whether or not those weapons will end up where they're supposed to. An apples-to-apples comparison of U.S. security assistance to Ukraine versus other countries is not so simple, because the aid comes from so many different funds, and because security assistance comes in many forms. This isn't unique to Ukraine. Tracking the various streams of security assistance the U.S. sends around the globe is complicated enough that think tanks have whole programs devoted to it. The most conservative analysis of the U.S. security assistance directly for Ukraine, allocated since Russia's February 24th invasion, will come at about $9.8 billion once Congress passes the new appropriation. That includes the $6 billion for for the new fund called the Ukraine Security Assistance Initiative in the forthcoming bill, according to a fact sheet published by the House Appropriations Committee. That will go towards weapons, the salaries of military officials, and other forms of intelligence, logistics, and training support. It's in addition to the $3.8 billion billion worths of weapons the US the from the US's own stockpiles that the Biden administration has dispatched since February since February Quote, you know they're ramping it up when they create a whole separate budget category for it, says Lauren Woods, who closely tra- tracks arms budgets as director for the center of the Center for International Policy's Security Assistance Monitor. Quote, this is really an enormous request, and I'm not really sure most Americans get how big this is, end quote. Compare Ukraine's $9.8 billion to the $4 billion the U.S. gave to last year to Afghanistan before the U.S. withdrew troops, or the roughly $3 billion or more the U.S. has given Israel each year for four decades. The U.S. has sent everything from Javelin anti-tank missiles to the switchblade drones, artillery and body armor, and increasingly some high-tech equipment like laser-guided rocket systems, surveillance radar, and MI-17 helicopters, as detailed in a recent list circulated by the Department of Defense. And it's having a real effect on the battlefield as Russia scaled down offensive in the East Sputters. 
That tranche for Ukraine is only part of the picture. The number could even be bigger as there's a $4 billion of foreign military financing, U.S. taxpayer dollars to underwrite other countries' purchase of U.S. weapons allocated to Ukraine and NATO allies in the congressional appropriation. Then there's the $8.7 billion of funds in the congressional package to replenish U.S. stockpiles of weapons, probably backfiling from much of what has been sent to Ukraine since the Russian invasion was launched in February, especially missiles. The Biden administration sent those under what is called the Drawdown Authority so that emergency weapons could reach the country as quickly as possible. Experts say they could have never seen those stockpiles retrieved from that from at this volume. There's also 3.9 billion for European partners supporting the mission, including hardship uh, pay for troops, 600 million for the U.S. to increase its weapons production, and 500 million for the Pentagon to buy more munitions, which altogether comes at about 24 billion, a staggering number according to each of the experts um, that the writer of this article interviewed. The U.S. is far and away the world's largest arms seller and provider of military assistance. It's a central part of American foreign policy. So this method of support is, in one sense, unsurprising. But still, taken all together, the aid to Ukraine is gigantic compared to what the U.S. sends abroad in a given year. Typically, according to the Security Assistance Monitor, U.S. military aid globally hovered around $20 billion just in most years since 2013, with 2007 reaching a high of $30.6 billion. In short, it's a massive investment of Ukrainian and European security. If the war in Ukraine drags on for years, this level of funding will arguably not be sustainable. Already, it's shaping Ukraine's pushback to, to Russia's invasion, but it may also catalyze other long-term effects. Long-term effects, such as the fact that the economy of the U.S. and, frankly, the world, feels like it's hitting a, a point of strenuous, uh, or of extreme stress, I should say. I should say. Um, and I wanted to read so much of that because that's a lot of details that are very important. You know, I've spent a lot of time involving this this whole issue with Ukraine. You know, I've told you there are a couple people, commentators I follow, who have been a little more question of, questioning of this. You know, while... It, how do I put this? I think this aid package is a bit much for this period of time. America at home is facing very many economic disasters stockpiling one on top of the other. Um, as a result of, of this administration's handling of the Ukraine crisis, of sort of just kind of pushing off all of the blame onto Vladimir Putin, gas prices have now reached uh, a national high of, I think, four and a half dollars or something like that. Something very close. To, all, over four dollars, which is the first time since, I think, 2008 that that has ever happened. So in well over, uh, uh, let me think about that, well over 10 years, well over a decade, uh, this baby form sh formula shortage is a big deal. Tons of inflation after inflation, inflation on inflation on inflation is happening right now in, a, in a, a, I guess, to the American dollar. And I think this aid package is a one-time deal. Because here's the thing, I do believe in supporting Ukraine. I, I do think, because I do think there could be a potential that not supporting Ukraine could be the difference between democracy and tyranny around the globe. Russia is an authoritarian state. If things were Russia's way, we would all have a system exactly right, like Russia. I assure you, nobody that lives in the free world would want that system. However, we can't, we can't risk collapsing ourselves economically, creating in and of itself from an already strenuous and tens incredibly tenacious political situation at home and add even more tension to the fact that now we've sent all this money to a foreign country to help defend it. The thing is, I can see defending it much better than I could see like all the money and time that went into into the war the war on terror. That is is at this point entirely unjustifiable. But there is a limitation. Ron Paul made a request last minute to maybe have to sign into this bill. Uh, overseas, uh, some kind of something investigator. I forget the name of it. I think that would have been a good idea because at least if we're going to send this much money, we need to make sure that it's being used correctly, that the weapons are being used correctly, that the, that everything is on point because that's a lot of money. And at a time like this, at a time of economic instability as, as we are facing now in the United States and frankly around the world, this is a big investment that 
that could be a total bust if not used correctly. And for us to just kind of go is a little suspicious, not suspicious, but a little dangerous in my opinion. There's also the very real idea of the military-industrial conflict, the military-industrial complex. That's a very real thing. Corporations that that build and design weapons for mass destruction, weapons for destruction in general, and buy out governments and support efforts by governments to invade and destroy other countries or destroy other national forces in other countries— uh, to make a profit off of the purchasing of those weapons. Just recently, President Biden, they've got an image on this article of President Biden uh, early May at a Lockheed Martin facility, looking at them making a a, 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 wes- uh, a wessel, <laughs> a missile. And that's a very real issue as well. And I think that uh, despite the fact that we... Um, I have just about 10 more minutes before I really have to go. I'm going to go ahead and close it up. I think that um, it's about striking balance. You know, we I, I think we should support Ukraine because I think that it's not just about the country, about the the independence of the country. I think there is a larger issue of democracy versus oppression in the world. I think that because this is Russia we're talking about. I mean, they've already made it clear that they would go after Finland as well or Sweden now that they're planning on joining NATO. So are we going to underestimate Russia's claims again? This we're on the we're on the brink of a very serious uh, uh, geopolitical international geopolitical conflict here, bigger than World War II. I could I could I would even argue could become I should say. And we need to be incredibly careful and incredibly detail oriented on how we deal with this. And I think just I think the way this bill was passed was not very detailed oriented. I don't think it's the end-all, be-all. I don't think this is it. Oh, it's war. I think that, and it's like going to cause economic disaster. I think it's just, there's a very high chance of that. And I think if if we had maybe listened to Ron Paul a little more, had a couple uh, systems in place to just keep ourselves in check, to make sure everything's being used correctly, make sure everything's, we spent our money wisely. Because if this is how we're going to spend our money, we better do it wisely. But since Congress is being bought out by military industrial corporations that are trying to make a profit off of war, uh, well, now we're facing a real issue. So we, we need to be more mindful of that, in my opinion. But that's just my opinion. Thanks so much for listening in. It's been great having you this week. I never stopped at one at any point in this episode to do another reminder, so I guess we're only getting to this episode. Uh, before we send off, uh, make sure to follow my Instagram and my Twitter handle. It's at Huey Noah. That's at H-U-G-H-U-Y-N-O-A-H. That's at Huey Noah. Also subscribe to Under the Stars on YouTube for my favorite moments and clips from the show. You can find Under the Stars on Spotify and Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're listening or watching, if you're on Spotify, make sure to give it a review. It'd be greatly appreciated. It'd also be greatly appreciated if you support my show through my merch and my books in the shop section of my website. And my fourth book, Hanging in the Balance, America's Manufactured Democratic Crisis, will be available for purchase on Amazon or in my store on Sunday, May 29th. Be on the lookout for that. Uh, uh, I think it'll be good. Thanks so much for listening in, and I'll see you next week. Bye-bye.